Welcome to the podcast, where we clear up common misconceptions in biology and evolution. And learn that all the answers to evolution's mysteries are simple in the way that everything is astoundingly complicated. Welcome to Darwin's Black Book. Welcome to another episode of Darwin's Black Book. My name is Tom Land, a professional researcher and zoologist. And I'm Rebecca White. I'm a PhD researcher in evolution and genetics at the University of Exeter. So, Becca, what are we talking about today? So, if you think way back to the first episode, um, Origin, November, when that came out, November 2020. Literally seems like many, many years ago. Yeah, so all the way back then, I mentioned that we were going to broach misconceptions. And one of the major misconceptions, major as in most memorable, um, are people who are under the impression that we evolved from monkeys. And they kind of say, I don't believe in evolution because I was never a monkey. And it's... Mm, yeah. yeah. No one's saying that, though, are yeah. they? And then from that, people are like, well, we would need a missing link between between this and there's just so much to unpick on those two statements indeed and that's why we're here today so I'm, I'm gonna start with a bit of an anecdote one time in 2018 i was at work in between my my undergrad and my masters um i worked at a student accommodation company mm -hmm. and someone was coming to visit one of the the residents there and he asked what i did and i was like oh i'm about to start my my master's in evolution and he frowned at me <laughs> and said no, I don't really believe in that. <laughs> oh, um, okay. I was never a monkey. He said the actual words. I was never a oh, monkey. Oh, actually, okay. And then he gave me his um, business card for some kind of alternative medicine thing. Um, which I'm, whatever. Um, anyway, so that was a very kind of pivotal moment for me because that was the first time I'd ever had to explain to a grown adult who truly didn't think evolution was real. Um, I had to explain to them what it was and why I was, you know, about to dedicate my life to the subject. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one, isn't it? I don't believe in evolution. I mean, I wouldn't say that I believe in evolution because I know it's very much real. Uh, the quote, Richard Dawkins, uh, the great thing about science is whether you believe on believe in it or not, it's true. It's still true. Yeah, 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 that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. Something along those lines. <laughs> because the evidence is still there, whether you want to look at it or not. Which so I, I want to start with this this word, the missing link. Um, this phrase, sorry, the missing link. Um, so when people refer to it typically in the media or just, you know, chatting among people they know, they normally have it to mean it's a transitional fossil, right? Kind of the thing that existed before one species became what it is today and what it used to be, however many a thousand or millions of years ago. So it's kind of a non-scientific term for the transitional fossil. Um, you see it a lot in popular science in the media, and it kind of originated when talking about human evolution. So um, an early primate into a modern day human. What is that kind of middle missing link that proves evolution and everything we know is real? But of course, evolution doesn't quite work like that. It's not kind of bam, one species, bam, another species, bam, another one. That middle one's a mix between the two. It's, yeah. it's kind of... It's a it's a gradual process. It's natural selection. It happens, and there's there's branching off as things adapt to different environments. Um, so missing link isn't really used in science anymore because it does imply that the evolutionary process isn't quite what it is, um, and that it's not really a chain, and it's not just one thing at a time. And I remember quite distinctly, if you <laughs> if you want to talk about it as well, in the Natural History Museum, some point. I think it was in 2019 we went. There is an exhibit there, which I believe you went on. I know on. what you're talking yeah. about. <laughs> is this the, um, this the one at Oxford? So they didn't they didn't actively say uh, but it he was involved with monkeys, yeah. but the way the display was laid out yeah, inside, it. Yep. that it went monkey to man, it was just like... It's in a straight line. It was in a straight line. And yeah. I had never given it a huge amount of thought because in my head I knew that it wasn't a straight line, but and this was just an illustration yeah. of it. But when you mentioned it, I now also get irate when I see a museum <laughs> I mean, I'm sure the line. Visionists and the curators knew knew that that's not the case, but um, and I'm sure like on the timeline they were looking at, 
that might have been a time that happened, but one thing didn't evolve into the next like that, like it was laid out. Yeah, absolutely. So with the term missing link as well, the connotations that I got from it when I first heard of it, when I was much, much younger, was the fact that it was this kind of secret missing thing, this this secret fossil that's not yet been found that would unlock the entire story <laughs> for this entire lineage of animals. And um, yeah, many, like huge amounts of famous discoveries for human evolution, uh, which I'll talk about a little bit later as well, are deemed as missing links. Um, it's, it's yeah, a little bit overused, I, I, I would say, and not at all reliable because there's loads of them. If you have two species and you find the missing link, in the middle well now you've got two holes between the first the missing link and the second species now you've got two then you need to find two more missing links we found those you've got two more holes either side of those so you just keep going it's it's a it, species are a spectrum so unpacking the first part of the the statement of the man that came into my work said um talking about humans so humans have not descended from monkeys or any primate that's around today so not from an extant primate it's not like you can go to a zoo and see a chimp and that species Say is your great 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 grandmother yeah. that's not that's yeah. not that's not quite the case um but we do share a common ape ancestor with chimpanzees and humans are more closely related to modern apes than to monkeys because we're all in the great apes group so the ancestor between um, humans and apes was around between eight and six million years ago. And then apes and monkeys share a common ancestor about 25 million years ago. So I became interested in when the first misconception like this happened. When was the first incident, even though there hasn't been evidence ever suggested that really? It's not like we thought that was true and then got more evidence and figured out it wasn't true. No one ever really suggested that. Mm. Um, and I found out it was probably only about six months after On the Origin was published. So On the Origin of Species, Charles Darwin's um, book where he talks about um, evolution and first proposes the idea. Um, In 1859, if you want a date for that one. And it was um, just kind of about six months later, a review of the book. A really long 33-page review was published <laughs> in the North American Review in 1860. <laughs> If you read that, you may as well have just started the book, to be perfectly honest, well, to see if you, you like know it. Well, I've read it, so you don't have to. Um, I've, re I've read it. You have read it. Okay. I have also well, read then, it. listeners, we've read it, so you don't have to. Oh, wait, are we talking about the book or the review? The review. Oh, I haven't the read the review. 33-page review. In the book on the origin itself, um, Charles Darwin, a lot of people think intentionally, made almost no mention of human evolution. Because although he may have understood that the same rules applied to us as they do to other animals and other living things, it was a whole other controversial thing, a whole other can of worms. And given that he was already kind of almost going against the Bible in what he was already going to say, this was kind of another step that he maybe wasn't willing to take, which is understandable. Um, but he did say, light will be thrown on the origin of man and his history. Um, and then, of course, uh, years later, he did publish The Descent of Man, which does focus more on humans. But Darwin, even then, he had access to almost no fossil evidence that might indicate how or when humans evolved. Um, so, yeah, it was probably tactful as well as he literally didn't have access to the evidence. So onto this 33-page review. Did I mention it was 33 pages? <laughs> um, did you read all of it? Most of it. I started Ooh. to then realise how long it was and how dry it was. <laughs> it was very, very eloquent. Um, oh. but it was tiny writing on A4, 33 Ooh. A4 pages. Um, so this review, um, he starts talking about humans and then he starts talking about monkeys, uh. which to be clear, Darwin didn't say. Um, so I've got a few quotes here and then one that stood out, he said... Well, I assume it was he, the author wasn't actually stated on this review. Um, it says, the few fossil monkeys that have been discovered are not so near approximations to the human. Okay. He's saying, okay, so we found some monkey fossils and they're not much like humans. No, because they're probably monkeys. <laughs> um, he also said, notwithstanding the very questionable evidence recently obtained by the discovery of some flint knives and arrowheads, which Ooh. you'll be coming on to later, won't you? Um, when yeah, you talk about absolutely. actual human evolution. Um, yep. 
So they seemed pretty aware that flint knives and arrowheads did evolve to kind of early humans or early modern humans or something along those lines. Um, and these are found in localities where their presence is difficult to be accounted for, um, as in monkeys. Right. So, And there are quotes like that all the way through. Um, and he says, if the theory must be accepted as a whole, we need to accept that human species need to be included in that. So he got that, which was great. Um, and then he was saying, geology can find no traces of these, these monkeys. Um, so another quote, within the comparatively brief epoch in which we were here confined, how can man have developed out of a monkey? When there are countless extinct types that should mark the steps of his progress, as in saying, if we've come from monkeys, where's the missing link? That's the first yep. evidence I could find of someone saying that. And that was just six months after On the Origin was published. That was, good, that was an incredibly good find, I have to say. That <laughs> Thank was, you. Uh, um, I mean, if anyone... The reading of the 33 pages was worth it so thank you very much if anyone listening to this thinks actually no i know of an, a piece of evidence where that happened earlier please do let us know at darwin black book on twitter or you can email us uh, through our website i would love to know but that is the earliest i can find you know six months after on the origin i think that's might be as early as you can get as one of the first ever reviews that is that is yeah I, th I think because when darwin brought this theory into the light a lot more people it was already a um, transmutation of species was already a, a, a theory which was being thrown around and people were discussing it small groups but I think bringing the theory of evolution through natural selection uh, into the wide audience and having such a large readership for that lots of people around the world with private collections of their own began to piece things together themselves especially those who were looking at ancient humans as well so yeah it's really interesting and I think it makes sense for it to come up at that time as well yeah um absolutely so what what about this whole missing link idea so clearly in this review they, they did mention there should be a missing link but that wasn't the first time this idea had come up so jean-baptiste lamarck you know that name don't you absolutely so he's quite quite a big name in kind of the the history of naturalists and pre-evolution he named quite a lot of things and if you listen to episode 10 about maria uh Sibylla uh, Merian, the uh, natural history artist, he, he also nicked a few species of her as well. Lamarck believed that um, there were changes over time. So he didn't specifically say evolution or anything like that because that wasn't really around. But he was aware that things were changing over time. And he thought that everything was changing to be something perfect. And that perfect thing is humans. Oh, good. And he thought everything that wasn't a human is just earlier in their journey to becoming a human. Right. Um, okay. So that was kind of his idea of missing links in that they're all around us and they just haven't become us yet. Um, so yeah, in his view, lower animals are simply newcomers to the evolutionary scene, I guess. They just haven't been around long enough to evolve into humans. I was going to say, I think for a naturalist and a natural historian who's studying the natural world, especially as high profile as Lamarck, who was studying hundreds and thousands of species and naming them, I think that's really quite short-sighted. Because surely <laughs> if you're looking at these animals, because it's, it's, right, if you're looking at these animals and you're seeing some of the fantastic adaptations that they have to their environment, um, like, for example, kangaroos and marsupials, the way that they move by the, their legs jumping retains energy. So when they lift off again, it takes a lot less energy than it would have done um, normally. Far less energy to actually bounce incredibly long distances than if humans were to do it. Yeah, bouncing is got... really hard. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like you've got uh, species which have fantastic pre um, like reproductive capabilities. So they've got pouches and they've got ways to keep their young safe and warm and fed in in all sorts of ways uh laying eggs like, plus breathing that's a good one as well it's like why don't we have gills if we're so perfect why do we not have wings if we're not so perfect I feel like this has Lamarck triggered you a bit you seem to those. just kind of been going off just mentioning random adaptations <laughs> i think I, okay point being i think it's very short-sighted of someone who was so involved with the subject to call yeah. humans as perfect because evolutionarily we're not i see what you're trying to say yeah that's all i shall <laughs> i shall leave that there so after on the origin came out the idea of lower animals still representing earlier stages 
of evolution, that idea was kind of still around. Um, while vertebrates, so animals with a backbone, were seen as forming a kind of evolutionary sequence, various classes were distinct and undiscovered intermediates between this were simply called missing links. So that's where that came from. So yeah, even after this as well, people were still after this, this missing link between um, either monkeys and humans or the actual last common ancestor between monkeys and humans. Um, and there was a search for a fossil that connected man to ape um, mm. by Dutch paleontologist Eugene Dubois, and he went to Indonesia. And between 1886 and 1895, he discovered remains that were later described as an intermediate species between humans and monkeys, turned out to be a Homo erectus, which <sighs> oh. ties in nicely with what you're going to say in a minute. Yeah, that's quite a one of the longest living species of the genus Homo. So When yeah. it was first discovered, they didn't call it this. Um, and they just saw it purely as a missing link. Um, I'm going to stop here, or I'm just going to start stepping on Tom's toes. But the point is, missing link <laughs> is archaic, it's confusing, and it implies things that aren't quite so. But the idea of missing link has been around for almost as long as we've known about evolution. And the idea that people think humans have evolved from monkeys has also been around for as long as we've known about evolution. So I'm going to hand you over to Tom now to actually talk about human evolution for reals. Unless you're literally talking about fixing chain link fences um, where you have a missing link, don't talk about this in evolution and biology. Thanks. Um, so what I wanted to talk about is the, quote, uh, missing link, unquote. You've just done what related you said. Species. I know, you it's hypocrite. great, isn't it? <laughs> Just a little bit. The intermediate species. Intermediate is in like on the, the timeline, right? So... Absolutely, yeah. Rather so, than so, as part of a lineage. Part of a lineage, because the lineage of human evolution is a mess. It's netted. It's lots of bits coming off lots everywhere. Lots of interbreeding and we don't between species. Lots of interbreeding. We've got some genuses overtaking other genuses. Some genuses turn genera. Sorry, We've got some genera just turning up and then disappearing out of the blue, and we don't even know who they're related to or where they went so it, it's a real net please don't think of this as again um a, a straight line of of evolution because it really isn't and i think we know so much about this little area of time because we've spent so much time looking for our ancestors understandable it's really cool science finding about where we came from you know even even darwin was interested in the sh shedding a light on the the origin of man so why shouldn't we be as well Absolutely. I mean, it, it is our ancestors. This who we're related to. It's something. It's, it's also an ancestor that we're like we can recognise. Yes, not just we see ourselves in them. A fish that lived <laughs> four hundred million years ago that we actually fish didn't live four hundred million years ago. Poor example. A blob that lived four hundred million years ago that we are technically related to, but we wouldn't recognise it as being such. Anyway, uh, grandma blob. Indeed. Um, so. Are intermediate species? It's a really interesting question, um, and it encompasses about seven million years of evolutionary history. And I want to look at the point in which we diverged from we, the human lineage, diverged from other apes. But in short, because otherwise I could go on for literally ages, and uh, there is also the point of the, the whole monkey issue as well because all part of primates which means they are monkeys apes are all related so in short if you go into the group called hominoidea which where most of the main apes that you know the orangutans gorillas uh, chimpanzees us we all sit in hominoidea you've lost your tail basically like the song where I don't, I still don't know this song. <laughs> Becca's been going on about this song. Like it's a famous song. It's really not. If you know anything about um, Veggie Tales, they have a song that says, "If it hasn't got a tail, it's not a monkey, it's an ape." Which isn't. Is that is that always true, Tom, or is that just kind of a general rule? Oh, that's pretty true. <laughs> if you're talking about primates, then yeah, it is true. Yeah, talking about primates. So, oh, actually, the point in the song is that rule's not true because if you look at you know like a chair, it hasn't got a actually, tail. Actually, Loris. 
a loris isn't an ape and it doesn't have okay. a tail. Well, there you go. Well, veggie tales so. are mostly accurate, but the point isn't the so. It also, doesn't matter. Chairs. <laughs> you can watch it if you want to. Please carry on. When you leave monkeys behind, you enter the group called hominoidia. So again, within within the primates, you've lost your tail. You have to go straight past Hylobatidae. They're all the gibbons. And then you've got to take a, a right past Proconsul, which is... Mm. It was a genus. It was a chimp-like genus in appearance. It lived wandering around above the branches. You've got gibbons which swing underneath them. Proconsul, now extinct, uh, wandered above them. And then you go into Hominidae. There's a lot of very, very similar sounding yeah, terms, just which thinking are that. confusing even to me. Um, so bear with me with that one. When you get into Hominidae, you go past the orangutan ancestry. They go off, and you go, go past Gigantopithecus. Right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, just take a just take a left, okay. basically. On this tree <laughs> that we're creating. Left, and you go past Gigantopithecus which are related to the orangutans. Some today, some people today believe Gigantopithecus still exists and that they're Bigfoot. Ah, they, that's they why are. I've heard they died 300,000 <laughs> years ago, 300,000 years ago in East Asia. And then you come to a fairly interesting group, the hominins. That's an easy one to remember. And they have been running or climbing around, I should say, for about 17 million years years and this is the group that we belong to we're hominins cousins too Excellent. we are hominins hominins include gorillas chimps bonobos and us and looking at chimps and gorillas we see a lot of climbing and a great deal of quadrupedalism that's walking around on all fours and most of our ancestors did these things both in appearance and locomotion resembled chimps and gorillas quite a substantial amount so now we come to the stuff that we know quite well, considering that they fossilize quite well, they haven't died in a jungle, because if it dies in a jungle, which most primates do, the fossils just, well, nothing gets fossilized, thing, bodies and eaten and, and decayed, and we have zero fossil evidence of anything that lives in a, in a forest. I think we know them quite well, because when we see them, we recognize kind of, um, you know, the bone structures and the layouts and ribs and stuff like that as it's going to be quite familiar to us as opposed to going back to your fish example if we find a um a fossil of a, like a really strange fish we might not be completely clear on what it is but if we see something that used to be related to us we can pretty much figure out where all the bits go yeah we know so much about our anatomy from medicine that we recognize uh, an ancestor in the hominin clade quite easily so cast your minds back to about seven million years ago last Wednesday and the group that was the gorillas or would become the gorillas I should say has just split off has just diverged and the animal that we're now with is the first true hominin it is called Sahelanthropus chidensis it was found in the Sahel region which is kind of northwest Africa in Chad and Considering that we think we relate human evolution with the Great Rift Valley of East Africa and Ethiopia and the cradle of humanity, considering these things on the other side of the continent of Africa, that says quite a lot about the spread of these species and their adaptability across a huge swathe of land. Now, seven million years ago, they're still living in forests. There is very limited information on these species. But through extrapolation, uh, we can figure out all sorts of details to do with it. So what would S. Chedensis have looked like if there was one wandering around in my bedroom right now? You would find it hard-pressed to differ it from probably a slim, bulky-looking ape. A slim, bulky ape? How could it be slim and bulky? That's what I was just... That's bad. That's bad. And I saw a picture of it, okay? It was I'm really hard to explain. Let me well, do that. Carry on. Let me carry do that on. again. I'm going to look it up. Okay. You do that. It's, it's no, it's slim, but muscular and bulky. Toned. Is he a toned ape? Toned. That better. It's a toned toned ape. The thing is, we know so little about it as well. So, so we have limited information, but through extrapolation, we've managed to work out quite a few details about this ancestor, of the first hominin, effectively. 
and we can figure out its diet from its jaw and its teeth that we found. The diet was, the, well, it's the primate standard, basically, fruits, shoots, and insects. Then you've got a new feature that turned up to signify the hominin clade, which was the spine has started to migrate out from the... Normally, in, in a gorilla, it comes out the back of the skull, the spine. In Sahelanthropus, you see it coming underneath the That's skull, where we have them. which starts exactly not all the way down, just a little bit, suggesting that actually this was an animal that started to utilize walking around on two feet much more. It was also living in the trees a lot more, like proconsul. That's possibly where bipedalism actually started uh, back there, uh, up in the trees, wandering around on two feet because you've got things to hang on to with your arms. So I said I was going to Google it, and I have, and there's lots of skulls. Okay. Um, they just seem to be made up of fragments. It's absolutely remarkable that someone has managed to piece this together. So what I think is really incredible from these fragments and what they've been able to put together is significant details to do with the skull. For example, the prognathism. The prognathism of the jaw. If you look at a chimp, you see that the jaw is round, quite jutting. They don't have a flat face. That is prognathism. And not only that, we can actually figure out the contents of the brain case itself. It's about 320 to 380 centimetres cubed worth of brain in there. Just to put that into perspective, humans have, modern humans, have a brain capacity of about 1,350 centimetres cubed. About a thousand more than so they were at. A literally a litre cubed more worth of brain. So quite small in their brain size. But from here, we can start to understand three main sections of the transition from more basic apes, more more ancestral apes, to a modern human. It comes down to three bits. Bipedalism, diet, and brain size. And each one feeds into the next. So let's look at the next one along the journey. Ardipithecus. Ardi. This is I. I love this animal so much. It so it exists about. It's just only a small jump. But now we're looking at four point five million years ago. So a two and a half million year jump. So since the Helanthropus, we've seen the lineage that would produce chimps has gone wandering off into the forests of Central Africa. And about four and a half million years ago, the Congo, well, where the Congo is today, the huge jungles there, they're actually shrinking quite a lot more. Grasslands are turning up. So chimps have just gone um, off into there, so they're on their own journey now. So the chimps have, have and we have so limited <laughs> evidence for between, between that point and today, because nothing is fossilising in jungles. So Ardipithecus is the first stop past that, that we can confidently say this is the road that leads to modern humans? Yeah, I've often heard Adi described as, you know, one of the first. The first stop on, on, on that journey. And it's split into two species, uh, Ardipithecus ramidus and Ardipithecus cadaver, and they lived about 4.4, um, actually 5.7 million years respectively. And they lived in Ethiopia over on the east side of Africa. About a hundred of this species have been found. Oh, I didn't know that. And what makes these animals worth noting and, and really worth studying? They lived in a wooded environment, which backpedaled on an earlier uh, theory that bipedalism started to evolve on the open plains of Africa, where you were forced to walk on... A, the two legs because you're on planes. <laughs> it's it's see, faster. Right? You can see it's faster. But actually, nothing to hold on to. They were living, in fact, in very sparse forests. They're thin woodlands. Something maybe in England we would associate with uh, beech forests, um, silver birch forests. So really, really small trees. Nothing like the big jungles of, of the Congo at all. But Sahelanthropus was anything to go by. These animals were facultative quadrupeds, which meant they wandered around on all fours occasionally, but then wandered around on two legs when when they could, when they were travelling maybe longer distances, because it's a, a more energy efficient. So kind of best of both worlds. Best of both worlds. That's, uh, but at the same time, we've got to remember that they had lots of 
ancestral traits. They had curved fingers for climbing trees, so they were still very much living in the canopy as well. Their teeth had didn't have so much of a specialization. They were still on quite the basic primate diet of fruit, nuts, seeds, mm-hmm. and insect supplement. But they could lock together and sharpen themselves, which is quite gorilla-like trait. So it still had really quite ancient traits like that as well. But the fangs were smaller, suggesting they had started eating softer foods. And their brain size was about 350 centimetres cubed here, so not a massive improvement on Sahelanthropus <laughs> about 2 million years prior. But up to this point, I've mentioned about how bipedalism may have turned up on grassy plains, the, the older theory. And I, I mentioned this with Proconsul as well. Um, Proconsul was above branch, and it started to walk on two legs up there. That migrated onto the land more. Uh, Sahelanthropus was ground and branch-based, and Ardipithecus was ground-based that occasionally went up into the trees. So we're really mm-hmm. seeing a migration onto the terrestrial landscape. As forests decrease in size, putting pressure to go into grassy areas, you still got the option for trees if you wanted to, but actually there was a lot more environment to go and look at, a lot more territory and, and land and food and opportunities to lead your group into. So they kind of had the option of being kind of more of a generalist they could survive in lots of different environments which would give them an advantage over those individuals that could only survive in a very set environment especially if more grasslands were appearing and they needed to kind of transition between the two absolutely and that's why ultimately uh, (laughs) this lineage has done quite as well as it has because they're adaptable and then they can uh, change very rapidly and easily to the situation and, and and the environment but forest has this, the small forests have provided these struts in which they can kind of they support a bipedal life you walk on two legs you can hold on to the trees as you go past and also on the grassy plains bipedal is now useful because you can see where a way you're going b if there's anything <laughs> of interest over there and see if anything's running towards you quite quickly which if may you are anything of interest you <laughs> if, you, if you are the thing of interest exactly and also you've got your hands free for such situations you can point or you can pick things up and you can hit things, which is all good. <laughs> and you can carry things as well. So the transition that we're seeing from the more ape-like features to the more human-like features, sorry, modern human-like features. So you've got the bipedalism moving to the ground more. You've got your hands free. You can see enemies approaching. Therefore, with that, you start to develop well, you can carry things. You start to use tools a little bit more. You can use things that assist you in, in your day-to-day survival. Therefore, you've got more ways to collect food that might have been previously inaccessible. You can use a stone to break open some seeds and nuts and provoke more energy-rich sources of of food. All of this promotes brain growth, and that's how it all connects together. Now, if we jump a million years uh, or two in the future again, about 3.8 to 2.95 million years ago, we come to Australopithecus afarensis more famously known as Lucy. Lucy! This is our um, mitochondrial grandmother, isn't it? All of us. All of us are related to... Uh, yeah, this species. it's quite incredible. Lucy was an individual, one of the first individuals, I believe, of, of this species. And the Leakey family, Richard and Mary, who were providing quite a lot of the momentum for finding uh, human ancestors, were... What was the story? They were listening to the Beatles, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. I don't know the story. And that was... <laughs> no, okay, so that song was on the radio, apparently, and they needed a way to try and... What should they call this specimen that they just found? And they named it Lucy. So that's, that's where they think that, that name comes from. So they lived, this uh, Australopithecus afarensis lived for 900,000 years, which is four times as long as Homo sapiens has lived for. They were around for a very long time. So Lucy species, they females were about three foot five, the males were about four foot 11. And this is, again, one of the best known uh, species, I should think, in, in human evolution. And should you look at the uh, reconstructions of it, it has certain derived, really recent features that turned up in the Australopithecus, which make it look like, I would say, the first of this lineage to resemble a modern human Mm. uh, instead of that kind of more ape-like appearance. It has a flatter nose, 
less open, uh, less like a, a, a chimps, I should say. I'm, I'm using this modern analog just so you have something to picture if you're not familiar uh, with the fossils themselves. But they had a kind of a flatter face. The prognathism was flattening a little bit. The ridge above the eye was also decreasing in size just a little bit, and the jutting jaw was disappearing. Again, still fairly obvious, yeah. but it was decreasing. Becoming more more into something we would recognise as a human skull. Yeah, absolutely. And this group consisted of uh, some famous examples. Lucy, the mm. first family, is the name of a group of 13 individuals found on a mountainside, which are considered the first family group to be wandering around. And the family groups were how we would recognise them today, as opposed to, uh, as opposed to the harem-led uh, societies, which chimps and sometimes uh, gorillas have as well, as well as that they have the Laetoli footprints, which are one of my favourite fossils of all time. So this is one of some of the oldest bipedal ape footprints in the world. So what this is, in Tanzania, there is a stretch of what was once upon a time ash, as the Great Rift Valley was splitting up, a huge volcano was spewing out loads and loads of, of ash. Um, and there, it was about 3.7 million years ago, but there are footprints in that ancient ash there's two adults and in between them there are two tiny footprints of a child oh. so it was and then Baby there's Lucy. this quite incredible bit exact they were wandering through this ash field and there's a really interesting point where they all of them turn ever so slightly and mm, i can only imagine they, they were wandering, wandering well that's the thing because they were walking away from the volcano so they were wandering through this ash at this ash field maybe they turned around for the little one to catch up but i can just imagine those two adults looking back at this volcano that was just spewing out it must have been such a sight for for well of limited understanding of what it was but it must have been incredible and it shows such a such personality, I think, for footprints as well. Yeah, it tells a story. They are one of my favourite fossils, I think, of all time, these trace fossils. So, from there, we know that they're bipedal. We've seen, we've seen the fossil evidence that they are bipedal, but they were still climbing trees. They were still um, being able to, to climb. They had curved fingers. But they didn't have a preferred environment anymore. They could cover grasslands, woodlands, shrublands, lakes. They were covering a huge amount of stuff. They could carry things. They were probably using some tools, not refined tools. They weren't making them, but they were picking up useful stones in a good shape to open things with or crush things with or um, mash things up with. And this meant that they had a huge variety of foods which were moving more into the kind of vegetarian side of things lots of berries lots of nuts in there and then also brain size they had a 500 centimeter cubed brain so that's a big jump about 150 centimeters cubed right there from ardipithecus when we were looking at a second ago and we're seeing there might be that some of the fossil evidence we found of some of these um australopithecus they are in what seemed to be laid out in possibly long, what was long grasslands. And they were thinking that maybe they were attacked and, and taken out by something that was hiding in the long grasses. But on further inspection, they're not that ravaged by time or predators, which suggests that it was something called funerary caching, <sighs> which is what chimps do today. We know that they do this. F uh, funerary caching is when you have acknowledged that something has died. You're not freaked out as, as much but you don't some animals ignore it or just run away from it if something dies yeah. that that you acknowledge that an individual of your party has died and you take it away from the living group so it doesn't attract predators or scavengers uh, and something that could threaten disease. or disease mm -hmm. um but instead they take this individual away into the grasslands and hide it uh, and wow, they're making well, they some that. ritual uh, that's that's in that's what we think that's an option okay that, that could be out there because we know that chimps do this we know that they take them away and they cover bodies in in brush and and uh, individual sticks we know that actually that when chimps are doing this they take sticks uh and one really uh, new example 2017 a female mum found her child i mean he he was middle-aged but found um her her boy had died 
and um, in a fight for dominance. And he had his mouth open and, and what the mum seemed to do is take a stick and seemed to almost inspect his teeth. Um, Making sure he'd gone to the dentist. Whether this was just to make, <laughs> whether just to make sure it was, uh, I don't know, there's anything there or to see if he was alive and just to make sure that he was okay. We don't really know don't why was she was okay. doing that. He wasn't okay. Mm. <laughs> he really wasn't okay. But after that, they they tried to resuscitate him, which is also acknowledging that he had he was no longer alive. And then they actually dragged him off and and put some bushes mm. on him. And it's this kind of this is the funerary caching which you may have seen in Australopithecus. And yeah, that's Australopithecus afarensis. Then there's another jump to Australopithecus africanus, another species in the genus, 3.3-ish, 2 million years ago in South Africa. This is famous because... Cause of death, right? Very interesting One of the first uh, individuals of the species that were found was called called the Tuang child. Becca, do you want to tell the story? Um, I don't think I know it in detail. I don't want to get it confused with Takana Boy, so please go <laughs> Okay, so Tarang Child is about a three-year-old. He was found next to a um, lake and he had been killed by a raptor of some sort. He had his uh, lots of scratches on his face specifically and it looked like he'd been dropped by a Ooh, big gosh. bird. Which isn't really, it's not a great way to die, oh, no. to be perfectly honest. But it's only three. That was the first. Oh, poor baby. <laughs> only, I thought he was five or six, but it, they grow really, really fast. So it, second look suggests it was only about three years old. But about the species, the pelvis is far more on top of their femurs. Femurs are far more underneath them, which suggests they're no longer crouching down as much to walk around. They're no longer utilising that quad, uh, facultative quadrupedal movement as, as in occasionally going quadruped occasionally going bipedal it's more turning into something that called obligate bipedalism which is almost always they're on two feet with like us but they would have been also stooped they would have also utilized their hands occasionally um but it's very much looking towards bipedalism it is evolving mm-hmm. quite strongly the neck is way more underneath the skull. So the prognathism here is again getting less. The fangs are getting less again. The diet, well, we, <laughs> we don't have any, ever, any evidence for stone tools, but it's strongly believed these guys were hunters and they were taking down mammalian prey. May have, they may have made a hand axe, but they were certainly, we think, hitting things with rocks at this point. Putting it is a really... Uh, really general term but again food general mix with an increased consumption of meat as well and therefore the brain <gasps> was increasing in size again to about 520 centimeters cubed and the family is developing as well it's got mm. group kinship uh it had quite small home ranges in this great rift valley as well we see them they don't often go out of the valley so it possibly is quite a lot of water in there and they were staying there uh, we know that there was a, uh, a really young individual in one group that had a dodgy mouth. It had uh, a mangled jaw on its, uh, on its right side. And it was eating, it looked like on its left side, the muscle buildup was much larger there. And the elders of the group looked after it. Uh, so there's a, a long, really strong family ties are, are, are developing. And yeah, there's altruism in there. And it's at this point which we're at a stepping stone because Australopithecus africanus is on the verge of, I would say, what you might, you look at it and you couldn't quite tell if it was ancient human, you can't quite tell if it was a, a de- very, very derived ape. And from there, the next stop, in fact, things living at roughly the same time as these guys, the species that was that was hanging around at the same time, was Homo <sighs> habilis, the first of the Homo genera, uh, and on the home straight, homo as it straight. were. Well, it's not actually. There's, there's another <laughs> <way>. <laughs> That's another two million years to get to present day, but it's it's 
becoming much more focused in the evolution. One of the other small genera actually that popped up and then disappeared was Paranthropus. There are three main species in this. It was around from about 3 million years to about 1.2 million years ago. And it's an offshoot group, a divergent clade, uh, mainly vegetarian it looked like. They had gone back away from the hunting and more towards a leaf-based, fruit-based diet. And they had a very large cranial ridge running down the top of their skull. If you see a gorilla skull, something similar. Basically, it's where your jaw muscles connect to at the top of the head, and it produces an incredible bite force. So, probably eating mm. seeds, nuts, and really hard foods like that. And, I mean, I say it's vegetarian, but nothing is ever cut and dried in the animal kingdom. They probably supplemented their diet with, with insects and perhaps caught a small mammal as well. So, yes. But it's it's from that point, Homo habilis, about 2.4 million years to 1.4 million years. So very much existing with Paranthropus, with Australopithecus. They're all there together. It's not a straight line, if that proves anything. And Homo habilis is also known as the handyman. Because it could use tools. It was thought that they were the first ones to actually make tools themselves. Tree climbing was quickly going out of the window. Uh, the stone tools, actually, the ones that we found date back to six, uh, 2.6, sorry, 2.6 million years ago. Just which outside. is 200,000 200, years older than the oldest Homo habilis that we found. Whether they made those old ones, or maybe it was Australopithecus, or that the the precursors to them and we think that they were developing butchery and in the later anyway nearer the one million year um age we think they possibly were cooking maybe maybe cooking definitely maybe. gives it some well, the ability to cook definitely has evolutionary definitely has evolutionary advantages um Mainly because you're cooking out things that can kill you, like bacteria or worms or any other pathogens. Um, exactly. Also, it can help you access um, more calories as well, because it starts with the process of breaking down the food before it gets to you. Absolutely. And therefore, actually, the fangs are disappearing as well, because you're dealing with softer foods more. Ah, so you don't need already. to give your energy into growing big fangs. Exactly. You just cook your food instead. But we should say that it, it was definitely around in Homo erectus, which was... Um, a Ooh, very, even got very short amount of time later but that i think i'm gonna stop actually at homo habilis at the start the the <laughs> i'm cheesy as hell here the dawn of mankind uh, <laughs> um the start of this homo homogenous because there is so much to say from that so much more that we know about those species as well also another another big thing i don't know the exact date off the top of my head but around this time as well when um, they first started eating meat and therefore butchery um hunting and the skills that that you need for that became a thing essentially and that means that you can now hunt big animals and there's so many more calories in meat because you can digest almost all of it whereas when you're just eating plant material a lot of it you can't digest so you can't actually access those calories so I know you've done some work on this, Tom, so you might know more than me about um, getting access to those calories from learning how to hunt really boosted um, brain evolution and made it bigger. Absolutely. And, and it's kind of a chain reaction. What I'm coming on to literally right now as a, as a kind of conclusionary point, um, it's really, really fascinating. I did my master's thesis on diet and primates and brain size uh, as well as binocularity. But that's for another day uh, the <laughs> the conclusion so with this added brain growth that was developing it's now 500 centimeters cube it's almost just over a third of what we are today but this enabled more cognitively complex behaviors to arise like tool use you could bang two things together and it would crush <laughs> a thing or a spark might happen along those lines or you could fashion a stick into a pointed stick and stab it in a thing that was a monty python thing. reference oh yeah. sorry <laughs> that? it's getting too excited <laughs> um uh self-defense classes against a pointed stick um i need to show you that later okay remind me <laughs> <laughs> so from there you were 
you could develop more tool use and then the diet would shift as as you mentioned earlier access to more calories which would enable further brain growth your limb proportions would start to change as you move out of a tree based quadrupedal lifestyle into a bipedal open plains mountainous any kind of terrain that you think you could handle the brain changes more tooth shape starts changing more bipedalism is almost entirely obligate at this point your hands are free more you can collect things you start attaching things to other things it's a process which seems in hindsight just seems yeah that makes sense but it's an incredibly detailed and really really interesting part of evolution um from this bipedalism to the diet changing to brain size changing and then it's a cascade from there so i think that pretty much nicely sums up how um there is no one missing link here um and we didn't come from monkeys <laughs> and that yeah absolutely in conclusion in conclusion yeah there isn't one missing link right becca what time is it <laughs> it's animal of the episode it is animal of Ooh. the episode whoop whoop i know you're cheering listener <laughs> wherever you may be <laughs> so so far becca won last week's one i did so becca won with the praying mantis she is one four congrats Thank there you. have been three draws so far <laughs> and i have also won four it is a big old tie on that one and <laughs> it's last a tie time round, really. it's a tie all round. last time we were looking at the scimitar toothed tiger which was awesome that we've got the entire genome for and you were having a look at the big old ground sloth yes it's sloths versus cats indeed it was prehistoric sloths and prehistoric cats anyway i can reveal the results the results 60 percent in favor of the ground sloths oh my gosh i thought you had that one yep. yes 60 nope. percent in favor Go of the ground sloth <laughs> Oh, I really, really didn't think I had that. <laughs> it was, yeah, I was, I'm surprised. Uh, my, I have to, just, just a really quick thing, kind of annoy me. My mother said I can't possibly vote for the cats because I'm allergic. Yeah, you are allergic to cats. Why did you pick a that cat? Was, that, that was her reason. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> no, thank you onwards. everyone for voting. Really appreciate it. I'm glad you all love sloths. So you've pulled ahead. <laughs> I am, to be fair, I think... Yeah, the giant grand sloths are incredible. <laughs> Onwards with this Those week. Those cats are gorgeous, though, so that's why I thought you had it. But anyway, this time <laughs> we've picked, um, we've gone away from, from human evolution and gone to things that are referred to as missing links in different animals. Indeed. So I've gone for a starfish missing link. This is quite cool. Cantabrigiaster fezuatoensis. Nailed it. Probably pronounced that wrong. But that's okay because it was only described in the literature at the beginning of this year, so not many people can pronounce it yet, including me. <laughs> so it's a missing link in starfish evolution. And um, we think it's the earliest ever starfish-like animal found. And it was discovered in Morocco and published in January 2021, so about four or five months ago. It's a 480 million year old fossil, so way, way before everything we've talked about in this episode today. And this fossil, it's really pretty. It has really intricate design, um, kind of like feathery arms that you can kind of see could become a starfish. And it really almost looks like lace work. And one of the authors of the paper, so the researchers that, that published this work, he said, if you went back in time and put your head under the sea in the Ordovician, then you wouldn't recognize any of the marine animals, except the starfish. They're one of the first modern animals. And that was Dr. Aaron Hunter from Cambridge University. That's, That's really, really cool. And just for some context as well, you said 470-ish million years ago. 480. Yeah. So 540, 500, 540 million years ago was an event called the Cambrian Explosion, where you, you really went from literal blobs in the ocean to an extraordinarily large, diverse amount of animals. And starfish popped out of this they'd already done it they'd already already there um, um well almost it was it was kind of a proto starfish um it locked it it lacks about 60 percent of the modern body plan of a starfish that you would expect that's a it substantial still kind of has proportion. the arms. that's a substantial proportion that it's yeah, but missing you still see it and be like i can see how that okay. could be a starfish 
um, and it's been described as kind of it looks like a hybrid between a starfish and a sea lily. Um, so sea lilies are kind of um, they're not a plant, but they kind of look like them. They're wavy armed filter feeders, oh, yeah, um, that have kind of a cylindrical stem. It kind of looks like a cross between a starfish and one of those. Oh, it does, and almost like a bristle star as well, actually. Which are have you googled that? Yes, which are <laughs> cousins to the starfish. The bristle stars are. They look like very round, like pennies with um, five long tentacle legs that are all feathery and they, they filter feet. So that's really fascinating. Oh, I can see that, yes. It's, that's really fascinating. I've just looked up the image. Yeah, yeah these, um, basically these scientists can now use that fossil as a template to figure out how starfish evolved, which is pretty remarkable. So that's the, air uh, quote, missing link of starfish evolution. Strong. That is a strong contender. I have gone with the... Air quotes, missing link. Uh, <laughs> in the run-up between kind of tetrapods, four-legged animals, and amphibians. Okay, so kind of coming out of the water entirely. Yeah, beginning its journey to not just turn up out of the water, but wander around a bit as well, and then go back in a bit for, you know, back in the water for a bit, and then... Um, but, right, this was hard for me because there is, I was really tempted, I just want to name drop an animal, it's called Megazostrodon, which is considered the first proto-mammal. Um, it still laid eggs, it had fur and looked like a really weird rat with a really long snout, but we don't really know what it looked like, so it was, I didn't think it was particularly, um, yeah empowering to look so at you're not even doing I'm not that. doing that I just thought I'd name drop it because it's really cool it's really cool right anyway <laughs> right <laughs> the one I'm looking at is is this this proto-amphibian it's called Eucrita melanolimnites melanolimnites it's a great name literally that translates from Greek as the creature from the black lagoon yes it was named after from Ooh. that old horror film creature from the black lagoon it lived about 350 million years ago and uh, half my mazalia. <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, five have been found from Scotland at the moment. This is, yeah, as I said before, the missing link between uh, tetrapods, things with forelimbs, and species that m turned up to be the amphibians. We think this is it because because it's kind of a, a contentious area of, of where it sits. We think that they evolved from animals called the baffetids. Um, which are early tetrapods, 30 centimetres long. They look like a cross between a newt with a crocodile head. <laughs> Ooh. That's what we're... They're right, the same size? Like newt size or crocodile no, 30 size? 30 centimetres long. Oh, so rather large newt or small crocodile. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Kind of small caiman size. But, I mean, there's, uh, I was going to say convergent evolution right there with a crocodile head. But anyway, mm. they went from that to the true amphibian they were getting smaller they were getting a more stubby nose they were getting um larger legs as well and they were walking on land more it's a fantastic cross between so many really interesting bits between base tetrapods and reptiles and amphibians it had a really interesting mouth i mean it might have had tiny fangs in it it was the first recorded species and this is a throwback to the frogs episode uh first recorded species to do buccal pumping where a an animal take air into its mouth and then force it into its lungs and it was also the same as uh, it was also sorry the first species to do costal breathing as in mm. actual breathing what we would consider via a diaphragm drawing air into the lungs as well okay. so it's one of the first species to be able to do that it Ooh. invented breathing no i'm not going to say that um <laughs> but it really showed a really interesting distinctive mode of life that was more terrestrial uh, than anything previously. So, yeah. That was Eucrita melanolimnites. Fantastic. So you've got the starfish air quotes missing link and you've got the amphibian air quotes missing link yep. to choose from. So you can vote either on Facebook Darwin's Black Book or on Twitter at Darwin Black Book. And we also have an Instagram now, which is at Darwin's Black Book as well. You can find us on Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts and many other podcast players. Thank you, as always, to the British Ecological Society for supporting the development and startup of this podcast. You can find them and join the society at britishecologicalsociety.org. 
And for more information on the podcast, you can find us at bit.ly forward slash Darwin's Black Book. And for more information about me, you can go to tomland.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. See you in the next episode. Goodbye. Goodbye.